Hello and welcome to The Book Show. I'm Rick O'Shea. This week we thought we'd take the author of the monster that is the Ross O'Carroll Kelly universe, Paul Howard, and put him together with the Heartland audience for everyone's favourite fictional South County Dublin character, school teachers in County Kerry. And Stephanie Preisner is here to talk about how to tackle your to-be-read pile. Hi, Stephanie. Hello. I counted last night in advance of this the amount of books I have in my house that are in my to-be-read pile. How many are there? 101. That's not a pile, that's a mountain, Rick. We'll talk about that in a few minutes. But first... Climate crisis is not typically fertile ground for comedy. It's just as well then that Jenny Offal is one of America's most highly regarded, if not necessarily prolific, writers. Her third novel, After a Gap of Six Years, is called Weather. In it, college librarian Lizzie is reckoning with the simultaneous crises in her daily life and those on a global scale. She tells her story in a blackly humorous and idiosyncratic way, the novel consisting of fractured paragraphs full of asides, jokes and riddles. And the end of the world is only part of the problem. Jenny Offal, welcome to the book show. Is it fair to say that you're looking at how we're all sometimes guilty of looking the other way when it comes to climate change? Yes, I think I was thinking about my own relationship to climate change and how I wasn't of course, a climate change denier, but I also didn't really look at it directly for many, many years. And um, I came across this phrase that was in another book about sociology, twilight knowing. And that really hit home to me that I was sort of looking at it, but not directly. The book came out not long after the world had been preoccupied with major wildfires in Australia. Does that seem like another time now, given how far we've moved on since then? It's funny that you say that. I was I was just mentioning that to my husband the other night. I said, do you remember how right at New Year's there were those apocalyptic scenes on the beaches in Australia? And I remember thinking, as many people I think who are involved in climate work do, I thought, oh, th- these are such striking scenes. I think it's going to, more people are going to kind of wake up to it. And I think there was a flurry of attention at the time, but of course, just a few months later, the pandemic took over. So I don't think that um, it's easy to remember what happened that long ago at this point. Obviously, our focus has been taken somewhere completely different and it's fallen off the headlines. Right. I mean, I I think that uh, one of the things about the climate crisis versus the pandemic is that there's always an emergency somewhere because of climate, but it's episodic. It makes the news and then it slips out of the news. And I think there's also a sense that we get a bit numb to it. Um, so trying to break through that is a is a difficult question, I think, both for scientists and for artists and writers. Yeah, and I suppose you're not a, a climate scientist, you are a writer of fiction. Is humour then one of the ways that you can potentially break that barrier in some way? Well, I did think that not many books about climate were very funny, and that's for good reason, of course. But I, I do think that you know, in a lot of professions, like if you have paramedics or people who work in emergency rooms, you know, they're known for kind of having an incredibly dark sense of humor. And that's part of what gets them through uh, the difficult days. And I did think that I wanted to have that element in the book so that it wasn't just doom and gloom. And there was also a sense that um, people go on being what they're like. And if you're someone that um, tends to try to see the humor in situations, you're going to do that till the end of days. 
I wanted to talk to you maybe a little bit about your style of writing as well. It's been described as as, as not being typical. Uh, it, it isn't. It's a quite fragmentary style. Is that, do you think, emblematic of how people communicate in 2020? Well, I think that I'm always just trying to get closer to the way I think. And it turns out, I, I guess I think in a very associative, <laughs> fragmented way. Um, I'm always trying to figure out how to get on the page of a novel the way that little moments um, kind of lodge in your mind, along with a bit of a joke, along with a bit of information you've heard. Um, and those kind of different registers of scale that you may on one hand be thinking of the great existential question of climate change, and then on the other hand, remembering that you're late to pick up the kids at school. Um, I wanted to find a form that could accommodate those swings in scale. I'm supposing that those sort of things you can potentially find in certain people's social media feeds every day. But obviously, by the very nature of social media, those things disappear really quickly. You may never see them. So is putting them in print on the page a way of at least attempting to to allow people to see them? I think it is. I mean, I am not on Twitter or any of social media. And partly that's because the one time I was on Twitter for about a month, I thought, oh, this will be the death of me like trying to come up with little pithy statements. I was thinking, you know, right now it takes me about six or seven years to, to do this in a book. And if I had the instant gratification of trying to just throw it out there right away, I think that the process at least that I use when I'm revising a book is a, a lot of the things that at first um, seemed interesting to me or, or clever to me, they kind of lose their radiance and they no longer seem like they have the same power. So those get cut and and time is kind of the great uh, factor there. And so I think that um, I am more interested in some kind of container that can hold things for, for a longer time. And that's why books have been around so long. In the book, uh, Lizzie, who's, who's your protagonist, she's, she's a librarian. Do you think that libraries have become heroic places? I do, actually. I think that's why I wanted to make her a librarian. Um, as a bookish person, I guess they've always felt sort of heroic to me. I always just um, zero in on where the library is in a town and find it right away. But I think as the you know social fabric in our country has continued to fall apart, libraries are, are one of the last places where people can go that you don't have to buy anything, you don't have to do anything. And because of that, they've become de facto shelters for homeless people at times. They've we have this huge opioid crisis and a lot librarians are learning how to um, revive people with Narcan. Um, a lot of things that are beyond their job description, but I think the part where um, librarians tend to be incredibly community minded and um, they're one of those sort of last stands against um, what feels like a failing, uh, a failing state at this point in what may be potentially a failing state in your words at the moment, what do you think the position of, of the writer and the novelist is? I think the position of the writer and the novelist is to tell the truth as they see it to people who will listen and also people that won't. Um, because I think, I, I, I don't really believe that there's one particular responsibility. I certainly don't like the idea of messages or any kind of morality um, that's inherent in novels. But I do think in in this moment in time where a lot of seemingly incredibly dark forces are sweeping the world, 
um, and we're in the middle of a historic crisis with the pandemic, it feels like on one hand, the role of the writer is to perhaps make the leader, the reader less lonely. Um, say, I see this too, I hear this too, here's what I'm thinking about it. But also to create some kind of, um, some kind of space of community um, within the book itself and hopefully beyond. What sort of writers then make you happy, make you laugh? Make me laugh. Um, well, there's lots of good Irish ones, aren't they? Um, uh, Flann O'Brien, <laughs> Samuel Beckett. There's an American writer, Joy Williams, who always makes me laugh. Um, Mary Robeson is very funny. I'm always so excited when I find any novel that is funny um, because uh, I feel like managing that mix of the dark and the light is very complicated. And when it's done right, it feels like a magic trick, really, to be able to to move across that continuum of emotions. I return again and again to the collection of stories, Jesus' Son by Dennis Johnson as um, kind of a model of something that can be very funny in a very deadpan way. Yeah, I think people should read more Dennis Johnson. Jenny, thank you so much for joining us on The Book Show. Thank you so much. Jenny Offill will be appearing in a free online event as part of the Belfast International Arts Festival on Sunday, November 1st. For more information, you can check out belfastinternationalartsfestival.com. Jenny's novel Weather is published by Granta, and I can also heartily recommend her previous book, Department of Speculation. Now we all have them, that pile of books that we haven't gotten around to, the ones you got for Christmas, the big breakthrough novels of last year, the one your best friend implored you to read and is still sitting there eight months later. The list goes on and the pile gets bigger and bigger. So how to tackle it? Stephanie Preisner has been looking into this and has found a couple of methods that might work for her. Stephanie, hi. They might work for me, but evidently they're not going to work for you because you're a hopeless case. Well, apparently not. I have 101 books, 69 of which I paid my own cold hard cash for, and the other ones are ones that have been been sent in to me. How big is your TBR pile? A pile, Rick, is like five to nine books. Anything over 10, it's not a pile that's a problem. Like they can make a TV show about you. You're going to be It's furniture. Yeah, this is true. Now, I have taken some of my pile and made them into a working from home laptop stand. And you call it a TBR, to be read pile. I call it a pile of guilt. I used to call it a pile of hope, but now it just sits there haunting me. So what I did was started to look at ways to get rid of this pile. What are your tips? First things first. We all have books there that feel like leaving cert books. Mm -hmm. We don't want to read them. We told someone we would. We're never going to. Get rid of it. You don't need that in your life. It's pandemic. You don't need other things making you feel bad. Just get rid of it. Give it to a charity shop. I can at least think of two two in my house, Don Quixote and Moby Dick. I'm never going to read Don Quixote is a great book. I was just about to get rid of it and you've convinced, convinced me to hang on to it. En un lugar de la mancha, de cuyo nombre no quiero acordarme, vivía una vez un hombre que se llamaba Don Quixote. Don Quixote is the best book that was ever written. That could literally be ingredients for paella. It's not ingredients for paella. It's the opening It's the opening sentence to Cervantes' Don Quixote. So what you're saying is you're undermining your own initial argument. Okay, but no, no, no. Can I just explain to you about Don Quixote first of all? Don Quixote, in the second book of Don Quixote, so do you know what happened in Don Quixote, right? So they write the first book. Then it does so well that someone 
fake writes a second one, pretends to be Miguel de Cervantes, writes a second book with a second ending. And then Cervantes learns that this happens and Don Quixote in the second book is aware that a fake book has been written about him. And so instead of going to where he was meant to go to, he changes and he goes to Zaragoza. Okay, so that's one that's definitely staying on my pile. Okay. But you have to get rid of the other ones. You you also have the theory that, you know, you probably shouldn't buy more books. Yes, because you clearly think that when you're buying a book, you're also inadvertently buying the time to read it. I think that at some point in my life, something is going to happen that will allow me the time to read it. Maybe a global pandemic. Who knows? We've had one of them now and you haven't made it through, like? I made it through a few of them. One or two. Okay, but still, there are... there are brilliant writers every day. Like so right now, there's a 16-year-old boy or girl somewhere having some terrible experience that they're going to write about and you're going to buy that book, but you won't be able to read it because your list will be too high. Get rid of it. There's always going to be new books. The Japanese have a word for it. What is it? It's called sunduku. It means the I art I do of, them on a Sunday in the no, paper. No, no, it's slightly different. Just a smidge. It is the art of acquiring reading materials but letting them pile up in one's home without actually reading them. And that's why we have Marie Kondo. Get rid of it. I also enjoy reading the first page of all the books and being like, you know what? I don't like this writing style. I'm not going to enjoy this. I don't want it. Just get rid of it. If the book is meant to come back to you and you're meant to read it, it will. Okay, you're you're a believer in keeping things visible as well. So am I. Now, the only thing is I have four full bookshelves of things that are visible that I should be reading right now. But your theory is just make sure stuff is there and visible and not hidden away in a box. Yeah, because if it's hidden away in a box, you've no hope of using it. I also have a tip about being a gift giver. I have a brilliant friend who loves reading. And when my pile of hope gets too big, I give her a book and I say, will you read this because you love reading? And if I should read it, tell me. Nine times out of ten, she's like, don't bother. Here's the Cliff's Notes. And then if it sounds like something that I like to read, I very rarely do. Once I give it to her, I'm like, okay, that's been read. Because once someone reads it, I don't feel so bad. <laughs> I've never heard of somebody subcontracting their reading out to other people before. That's a great idea. That You could call it that, but you could also say, you know, that it's a book club, basically. Okay, if and people should purge. I'm a great believer in, regardless of the size of your pile, if it's only 10 big or it's 101 big, that you should get rid of uh, books at a regular interval. So what are your rules for that? If I have had the opportunity three or four times to choose that book and I have overlooked it there is a subconscious reason I don't need to talk to a therapist about it I'm just going to get rid of it then there are other ones like oh you, an adaptation has come out a movie is coming out you're going to watch that get rid of it uh, it's got a coffee stain on it because you've been using it as a coaster get rid of it <laughs> um, you heard some bad reviews about it get rid of it you know your heart like touch the books let your heart open and let your heart guide you and then I have a jar tip which it might be time for, which is my top tip. Are you ready for it? Okay, now hang on. First of all, before we die, I agree with you on that. And what happens sometimes is you buy a book and, you know, three years later, you go back and go, what was I thinking when I bought it? There's no way I'm ever going to get it. No, you see, I don't do that. I don't buy a book until I need a book. The books that pile up are ones that are gifts. I wouldn't, like, I have a pile right now. I would in no circumstances buy myself a book. That's just hoarding. We don't understand each other. We, We literally come from different planets. I know. Okay, I I do like your idea of the jar. So set out for me the idea of the jar. I think this is going to be hugely helpful to people. If, like you, people are struggling to get rid of a book and they like all their books and they've paid for all their books so they want to keep all their books but they still have this issue of what to read, write down all of the titles and put them in a jar. When it's time to read a book, take one out of the jar. The choice is made for you. You go and you read that book. 
And on that note, we'll finish. Uh, as always, Stephanie Preisner is brilliant. Thanks a million. Chat to you soon. It's time as ever for an author to meet a book club at the requisite social distance, of course. This week, it is the turn of our smallest book club to date. They're all teachers and it's midterm. And here's Joanne to tell us more. So it is great to be starting off this midterm break talking about books. This book club is a small book club of only three. And as well as being great friends, we are teachers and we work together. Our book club is called Novels and Notions because we inevitably end up talking about books whenever we meet, but also we always have a bit of fun and a laugh at one another's notions. There are no rules to our book club. In fact, the closest we've come to reaching some kind of shared reading experience is with the Ross O'Carroll Kelly series. After watching the documentary aired last year, we decided to find out for ourselves what all the fuss was about and are still plowing away through these books finding plenty to discuss. We even had planned a trip to Dublin this summer to meet Ross on the stage, but alas, it wasn't to be. And this week's author is Paul Howard, who has presided over what you might call a publishing industry that is Ross O'Carroll Kelly. 20 novels, four plays later, he's become part of the Irish cultural fabric. Paul joins me now. Paul, how are you? I'm great. Yeah, really good. It's great to talk to you. Great to talk to anybody, let's be honest. You know, I haven't, <laughs> haven't been out since March, so... You know, human contact of any kind is great. It is one of the joys of conducting <laughs> interviews these days. Uh, t- tell me, did you ever think that Ross's adventures, misadventures story would be as widely read as they are? I mean, even in Kerry. No, I really didn't. I, re- I really didn't. I mean, I could pretend I did. But when I look back on the early columns, which I was doing recently, because I'm trying to put together a book of, of the best columns over the years. And when I read the very, very first ones, I know I actually wasn't working particularly hard on it. I, I don't think I I don't think I cared enough about the character or anything at the time. And I really thought Ross was going to run for eight weeks in the Sunday Tribune. It started off as a column um, in the sports section of the paper, but four paragraphs long every week, four or five paragraphs. And I was going to take this kid called Ross O'Carroll Kelly from, you know, the first round of the Leinster School Senior Cup up to the final on St. Patrick's Day. And after the 17th of March, it was never, ever going to appear again. And that was 22 years ago. Do you have a preferred term for what is essentially the, the entire canon that you've created right now? Is it the canon? Is it the Rossiverse? I think, you know, I, somebody used the phrase dicklet um, <laughs> 20 years ago. And I, I think probably sums it up really. <laughs> Because he is, you know, he's just so he's just so awfully obnoxious. And and that the mystery to me is why people embraced him, you know, why people liked him and, and kind of want to cheer from. One of the things I, I love so much about Ross is that people may presume that, you know, that his heartland would be quite a small part of a very small part of Dublin. But as we're about to prove to you, that's entirely untrue. We're going to take our first question. It is from the Novels and Notions book club in Tralee, and it comes from Maura. Uh, Ross started out as a teenage dirtbag. As he grows older, is he more difficult to write as a character? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I think, I think no. And the reason is Ross is probably closer to my age now. You know, when when I started writing at the beginning, I was in my late twenties, and he was a teenager, and I really had to kind of research what 
teenagers were like. They certainly, you know, in 1998, when I started writing it, teenagers then weren't like teenagers when I was a kid because the confidence thing, that's the that's the big difference, I think. I, I couldn't get over this generation of young jock, jock types when I started covering schools rugby who had this confidence, who looked you in the eye when they spoke to you, who had the shoulders back and had all these kind of lifestyle aspirations that we never had when we were kids. And I found getting into that character was quite difficult and understanding that. I think as Ross has got older, I found it probably a bit easier because I've grown to like the character. Um, I've warmed to him, which I didn't at the beginning. When I read those early books and early columns, it's pretty clear that I was tr I was being satirical, but I'd kind of forgotten to be funny as well. So when I read them back now, a lot of the humor is is it's it's kind of it's quite sledgehammer a lot of it you know and it was pretty clear that I didn't you know I, I didn't like that I hated this world I had a chip on my shoulder about this particular world I was writing about and I think it was only later on when Ross became an adult and I started to kind of you know consider him in the in the context of his relationships with his with his family his children his wife his mother and father and started to kind of see him having you know, real life human interactions and, and, and problems. I think that I actually found it a little bit easier to write them as, as time goes on. OK, Lisa has our second question. How much of your worldview is shaped by rock and the search for new material ideas, trends to satirise? Yeah, um, my own worldview isn't isn't shaped by Ross's at all, but I do have that voice in my head. People sometimes ask me, you know, is it is it difficult to get into character when you're writing Ross? And I find it's most difficult to get out of character. Um, I have that voice in my head all the time. And it's a really, really irritating voice, that kind of obnoxious South Dublin voice. Um, but I do think in Ross storylines all the time, potential Ross storylines, um, because the weekly column in the Irish Times <clears throat> is quite topical. So I'm always looking for things happening in the news, cultural developments, you know, thing, just situations to put them in. Like it could be anything. Like, for instance, at the beginning of the lockdown, I was thinking, if this thing goes on for a year, how on earth am I going to come up with enough storylines? Because Ross, Ross essentially can't leave the house. I'm just contained in the, the question there. You know, it is a case of just constantly staying on, on top of things, looking around, looking for developments. That thing happened about the banana bread in March. It just seemed like the entire country was baking banana bread and giving it to each other. And I wrote this column for the Irish Times about how I think Surika baked seven or eight loaves of banana bread and gave it to Ross to go out to give to the neighbours. And then the neighbours started giving him banana bread in return. And he went out with eight loaves and he came back with 12 loaves. And they've no idea how they're going to get rid of this banana bread. Well, that was actually really happening in our lives at the time. And after that column appeared in the Irish Times, that evening I opened the front door and two people in the estate where I live had left banana bread on the doorstep <laughs> so it was it, it is reflecting real life you know it's just, it, it is reflecting things that that go on all the time and that's that's what i tried to do in the in the column and the books i can't wait for ross to wander around to his neighbors with soup now that we're in the winter uh, finally our third and final question comes from joanne 
Have you ever considered publishing a glossary, either within the books or as a book in itself, that would explain the racisms definitively, such as mince pies means eyes? And do these racisms ever seep into your own conversation unintentionally? <laughs> well, I said there that the most difficult thing for me is to get that voice out of my head. And, and sometimes I do hear myself speaking in that voice, you know. The, the racisms are interesting. We, I did a book about it's probably about 10 or 11 years ago now called The Ross Guide to South Dublin. And I did a glossary in the back of that. But it's a long time ago now. And a lot of the words, when I read that now, a lot of the words I haven't used for a long, long time, a lot of the rhyming slang. I think the, the language of the column has evolved over the years quite a bit as well. Um, the great thing about Irish people is their inventiveness. There's just a sort of lovely thing we do with rhyming slang. You know, it's it's Cockney rhyming slang hasn't actually changed that much in the last century or so. What we've done with it in Ireland, I think, is really interesting because I hear these phrases all the time. For instance, I was at Dublin Airport when the Ryder Cup was on and I was picking up my bag and a young guy at the next carousel shouted, Rosser, are you not at the Winona? And the Winona was the the, the Ryder Cup. <laughs> so everyone was calling the Ryder Cup the Winona. And I, I just love things like that, you know, and because so much of my material has been culled from real life conversations that I've eavesdropped on at Maeve Binchy's suggestion, as it happens, I have pieces of paper everywhere just with bus tickets and things like that with like phrases scribbled on them. And sometimes I'll be using one as a bookmark and I'll put the book down and I won't pick it up for about six years. And then I'll open the book again and find find these phrases. So if there is a glossary, some of them some of them have, have been discontinued over the years. But yeah, I would love to put together a list of them, all the phrases I've used over the course of, you know, 20 books and probably a thousand newspaper columns. Paul, thanks a million for talking to us and thanks a million for talking to our book club in Kerry as well. Pleasure, Rick. The latest instalment in the Ross O'Carroll Kelly saga, Braywatch, is out now and Paul Howard has teamed up with Gordon Darcy for a second in their series for younger readers. Gordon's game, Blue Thunder, is out now. Both books are on the Sandy Cove imprint. Thanks to Paul for his time and, of course, to the Novels and Notions Book Club in Tralee for the questions. If you'd like to volunteer your group to take part, you can drop us a line to bookshow at rte.ie. And that's it for this week's book show on RTE Radio 1. The podcast is available wherever you get yours. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at BookshowRTE. And if you're around on Bank Holiday Monday night at 8 o'clock, I'm interviewing novelist, author and podcaster Elizabeth Day on a bonus episode of Shelf Analysis on YouTube. Next Wednesday, also on Shelf Analysis, I'll be talking to John Connell about The Running Book, Wednesday at 8pm. Don't worry if you're not there for either of them live, you'll be able to play catch-up on RTE Culture. I'll talk to you again next week, and as ever, don't forget to check with your local bookshop for any of the books featured on the programme.